I'm Alka Khuri and host of the new podcast, South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington, Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In this first season of South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to new South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. My host today is Namita Gokhale, a writer, publisher, festival director, and author of 16 books, including nine works of fiction. Namita Gokhale is founder director of the Jaipur Literature Festival along with William Darlimple, the world's largest free festival of its kind. The Jaipur Literature Festival has been described as the greatest literary show on earth. Gokhale has won several awards for her novel Things to Leave Behind, and she was conferred the Centenary National Award for Literature for her literary contributions, as well as for her service to the nation in supporting and showcasing literary talents and creating a literary environment in the country. Namita joins me from New Delhi. In this interview we'll be talking about her latest novel Jaipur Journals that was published in 2019. Welcome to the podcast Namita. I'm so delighted to talk to you. The same. Thank you for getting me to speak to you. Thank you. So I'd like to start by referring to the ways in which the novel brings to the fore the the process and the art and the act of writing. Yes, uh, the Jaipur Journals is indeed a meditation on the act of writing um my previous novels have always been set close to my lived experiences many of my novels are set in the kumaon himalayas where i grew up and where i still spend a lot of time but for the last 15 years the major part of my year goes into programming and enacting the various editions and the main uh, edition of the jaipur literature festival itself and so you could say it has been the most transformative and the most uh, deep influence on me in my recent years uh, i've also learned a lot from all the writers who i've met there and um, i've observed writers and audiences and the writing process and absorbed it uh, I haven't tried to learn from it but I have watched it and it has been a porous experience listening to writers talking about their writing listening to readers and some potential writers listening to the creators and uh, many a time as in the novel the, the reader becomes a writer through that process I believe that each of us has at least two novels inside them one is the life they have lived and one is the life they might have lived and a lot of their work revolves around these two central themes uh, in this novel the central character is somebody called rudrani rana rudrani rana is a character who came to me as a composite of many of the sometimes reticent sometimes aggressive unfulfilled unsuccessful writers who come to the festival and uh, often what they carry within them or even their 
half-written, fully written, unpublished work has merit. But writing isn't so simple. There are always gatekeepers, there are processes, there's good fortune, there's luck. And Rudrani Rana for me was the emblem of the writer who does not know how to negotiate the space of the writer as a public figure. She is a character, the unlikely character, this mean, vicious, eccentric woman who writes anonymous letters maliciously penned in purple ink to the writer she is jealous of or who she despises or scorns. And such a negative character would become the most beloved character in the book. Uh, it is a, a tribute to nobody but to Rudrani Rana. And many people think of writers as noble people, but I know that like all artists, we suffer from a huge amount of petty jealousies, uh, ambition. We watch each other, uh, as in any profession. Uh, though, of course, most of us are quite polite about it. Uh, so Rudrani Rana, in that sense, is, is the figure of a certain kind of writer. And uh, it complicates things or makes them simpler that she actually turns out to be a very good writer and is, in the end, awesomely recognized for her talent. <laughs> and what would you say about the author's fear of self-exposure? As Rudrani Rana wonders, what would happen if a book was published? She would have revealed herself, made herself naked. Uh, so the writer's fear of self-exposure, of putting themselves out in that public space where they may be law given the credits they deserve or they could be scorned uh, is a part of it because writers are extremely vulnerable people. They have put their deepest, darkest, lightest thoughts, feelings, emotions out into the public domain. And uh, they could be scorned or they could be met with utter indifference, which is the even more painful fate. Mm -hmm. So the writer's self-doubt is of two levels. One is the doubt about the quality of what they're writing or the validation of what they're writing. But the other is simply of, of the raw vulnerability of wearing their sleeve upon their heart. And yet writers write. And as one of the characters in novels says, all writers are ultimately cannibals. Yes, all writers are cannibals. But often the person or the thing or the situation they cannibalize is themselves. Mm -hmm. And self-cannibalization is even more painful than uh, plagiarism or living off the thoughts and pains of other people. And what would you say about the process of writing as a process of self-reinvention? For example, in the character of Beta. Uh, it's another very important theme because the character of Beta, I think, is an emblem of the person is at heart a writer who is a poet here and who has imbibed an entire poetic tradition of Urdu ghazals, of Urdu metronomics, of Urdu style and vocabulary. Even though his real life position as the son of an unsuccessful uh, tailor with a tragic life uh, is not prepared him for that princely uh, vocation of the Urdu uh, literature. And of course, in that situation, he has to reinvent himself. He comes up with a pen name, Betab, 
Mitab is the impatient one. But at the same time, he puts some Razi Khan, Betab kind of thing. And uh, towards the end of the novel, he actually makes the choice somewhere between his old profession, which was indeed a profession mm -hmm. of being a burglar. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of metaphors there about the thief, because some, some, somebody is the thief of time, somebody is the thief of hearts, somebody is the thief of other people's stories, other people's lives, other people's emotions. And he gets the complexity of that and, and shares it in his writing. Yeah, he does that. Um, I was wondering if you could also talk about writers that feel drawn towards the power of the narrative because it helps them make sense of the chaos of their lives. Um, you know, every novel tries to make sense of the chaos of life, to find a design and a pattern on it. But of course, those novels that do too much of that fail miserably because even the novel that is finding a pattern in the chaos of life must therefore in some of the chaos of life in it um, uh, to, to, to be able to find that pattern because otherwise uh, it'll be a utter simplification of all the fairy tales that end uh, happily or unhappily but that have an ending. No novel ever should have an ending though it can end at a certain point, but we should be able to imagine the story continuing in all its complexities. Do you think there's a hint of narcissism among writers? Yes, all writers are narcissists. They are solipsistic. They are obsessed with their own stories and their own versions of their stories and their own ways of telling the stories. And indeed, uh, I feel much of recent literary fiction around the world tends to become, uh, I'm saying this cautiously, but tends to become a little self-indulgent because at another time, at an, in an, another sensibility of another era, it was easier to convey these thoughts. But where there is so many other um, platforms to share your heart, to share your pain, to share your anger, to share whether it is in hip-hop poetry or whether it is in, in so many more direct ways. And sometimes I feel the truly great literary novels are those that take refuge in a genre or in a structure that provides it a support outside the, the story of the writer. So to, to, to return back to the idea of narcissism, mm -hmm. one is the narcissism of the obsessive need to self-cannibalize, to look into yourself and to try to offer up that meat to the reader. But the other kind of, uh, not narcissism, but of vanity, I would say, is those writers who want to be writers because they want to be in inverted quotes writers. And um, I mean, you are a academic, I'm sure you'd recognize the type. Um, those who approach the writing of fiction with so many learned preconceptions that they never get into the act with the spontaneity which a less learned person may be able to. Because the act of storytelling is a much more primal act than can be got when there are so many layers of resistance to it. Mm -hmm. uh, here I'm talking specifically about a character in the novel called Gayatri 
Smith Gandhi, who is an academic, and she's trying to write a novel. And of course, her no novel is partly biographical, partly learned, partly has with so many filters to disguise her own experiences or her own thoughts, that in the end, she actually decides not to write the novel. And I think that is another form of honesty and personal growth that she achieves in, in the course of writing her book. Because all of us discover so much ourselves by what we write or what we decide not to write. In your novel, one of the characters refers to writing as autobiographical memory, and another one refers to art as a wound that cannot heal, an itch or a pain that will not release us. Talk about that. Autobiographical memory is, is so strange. Uh, memories always lie, uh, all, memories always distort, at least in the act of fiction. We magnify some, we also for the art, artistic purposes, and also because we are telling ourselves these stories, and so we are always lying to ourselves. No, yeah, they, very they, few people yeah, so they become are truthful to themselves. They metaphorize, they embroider, they, they do things to it. But at the same time, it is a healing. Because sometimes if you have some very hurtful memories and you write them, you are externalizing them. You're putting them out there. And uh, then you can, the wound inside you can heal. Sometimes great art comes from scratching away at that scab and looking deeper and deeper and examining the contexts and the, the meanings and the, the dimensions of that hurt so that other people similarly understand the reader enters into the sphere of pain and acceptance of the pain or denial of the pain of the writer. And each, both the writer and the reader may be interpreting that pain in completely different ways, but they are experiencing it. But it also helps to, to hide it somewhere. You know, in, in one of my novels, um, in Shakuntala, the play of memory, which is partly based on real life memories, and which I used consciously or subconsciously to handle some past life memories possibly that came to me. Uh, I've said in the first chapter of that, that Lord Shiva is also known as Smarhar, the destroyer of memories. And really writing memories sometimes helps in both making them immortal and destroying them. Mm -hmm. uh, in adding them to a community of memories rather than as an individual memory. And uh, many psychoanalysts will agree that this act of forgetting is also the act of healing. <laughs> but there are other sorts of writers there. There is uh, Quentin Cripps who writes about things which are about things uh, in the sense that he uses uh, cultural metaphors sometimes perhaps. His book on Disney is, is another way of looking at the great storytellers of the world, the greatest narrator of our contemporary myth. Walt Disney himself, and how that figure is examined both through Americanness and through non-Americanness. Or Anna's books are feel-good books, or they are like mantras, or they are like meditative experiences. So all the writers in the books have different attitudes to them. The young Anura, the 12-year-old writer, she has her own fierce ambitions and her ego and, and she's, in fact, like many grown-up writers that I know, except that she's so precocious. 
So all these writers, I didn't plan and plot it like that. The story just came to me quite naturally in different segments. But when I look back at it, I see that there are so many ways of approaching the writing process that uh, are presented in it. Mm -hmm. This, in fact, takes me to the novel structure where the narrative is articulated from various points of view. It goes back and forth, uh, almost like in a relay race, where one character's story ends, the next one takes off and so on. And then you have uh, some of the backstories that come at the end of the novel, giving us some really interesting insights into the characters' lives. For example, those of Anna's and Rudrani's as a journey into their past. Could you talk a little bit about that? So that structure, because I wanted to, first of all, place it in the real time of the festival. But obviously, if I placed everything in the real time of the festival, it would have been impossibly cramped and no writer, no reader would be able to ingest it all. But when I set out to write it, I knew it was set in the festival. And uh, I knew there was somebody who wrote an anonymous letter and I knew somebody would die. I didn't know at that time that the person who wrote the anonymous letter would also be the person, one of the people who died. In fact, you could say that I grew up as a writer with my last novel, Things to Leave Behind. Because most of my novels before that were in the first person, first person feminine usually, except once a first person masculine for a bit, and once a ghost who was not masculine or feminine, though we suspect he may have been masculine. So having all those first person stories all my life, which are so much easier to tell because there's just one camera fixed there, you know, and one identity and one voice. But finding the voice for telling many stories, uh, I only mastered it to some extent with things to leave behind. And this story was also told in the author authorial voice. Mm -hmm. So I was learning on the way. And uh, because the festival has so many people, each of them with so many stories, uh, I kept shifting their stories and then the stories being enacted on the stage as well. Mm -hmm. And the constant... Uh, interaction between this narrative on stage and the effect on of that on the narrative off stage mm -hmm. um, and and then I needed to add those backstories because for example some of Anna's story I picked up from that bit and moved it to a complete backstory so that people could absorb it better mm -hmm. Betab's backstory is not really a backstory it's just a a continuation of that story. Zoya Mankotia's story, I finished within the structure itself. So it was um, quite a free-flowing structure in that sense, but very carefully calibrated. So the most important part in the structure was to balance these stories when I was telling them to know where to end it and where to pick up the next story and then when to pick up the next story and how to dovetail them into each other so that it would be a seamless part of many stories. That was the difficult part. And uh, I am I, glad that it happened mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about the centrality of Alice Walker in the novel, uh, in particular your reference to the color purple, not only as the title of Walker's novel, but also as the intertwining of the purple color in the narrative. For example, Rudrani Rana's 
the truth teller's purple poison pen, her purple cards, and her purple hair, uh, as well as the purple color and the kite that Beta finds in the garden. Uh, the color purple, that again came to me when I was writing about Rudrani. It, it came as, I mean, I was just writing about purple. And then, of course, I had to reference because I hadn't read the book for a long time. Though I had the privilege of spending a little time with Alice Walker many years ago when she was in India, which she may forget, but which I remember well. So the purple color became a, a sort of a thematic unity in the whole thing. And it kept creeping in, sometimes without my noticing it. That's fascinating. Uh, could I go back again to the novel's characters? I found them to be most intriguing, particularly because of the ways in which some of them undergo the most dramatic transformations. Bitab, for example, the, the tailor's son turned burglar, turned poet, becomes a star at the festival. And Rudrani Rana, she lets go of her novel, she lets go of her baby, and finds a publisher in the end. And she also has a windfall. Gayatri too has a windfall, and what's more, she even reunites with her lover. I began at one point, which I then discarded. When I began it, I began with the story of Gayatri attending the festival, but then that became very much a subsidiary theme. And uh, the character of Rudrani Rana came to me much later. I was at a literature festival where I saw this, I have this photographic memory of the writers feeling clever and entitled and in a wonderful conversation with each other inside the dining room where they were all having lunch together. And there was this lonely figure, this stalker, this not so successful poet who was peering in from the window at them. And that is the sort of person who made me think of Rudrani Rana. So Rudrani was that figure which I wanted to put in there. And I have so many characters who I forget about the minute I write them. But Rudrani was the one character who stays within me still. Gayatri, you know, many of the young women who read the novel got upset with me. And they said, how could you let Gayatri marry Sumedh? Couldn't she see how horrible she, he is? And they got really, really angry. Even my editor said, you can't let her marry Sumedh. <laughs> but interestingly, somebody else very close to me, who is uh, married to a rich and successful man, she said to me, you know what I love best about your novel was the way Gayatri reunites with the man she loves. So even love, marriage, the social structures within marriage that Gayatri embodies are a very important part of the journey of many other Gayatris in India. Mm -hmm. Betab again is a favorite character who came to me because strangely enough, uh, a burglar, okay, I'll tell you the story and you can present it as you like. Uh, two or three years ago, it was a summer night in June, and I had done this unwise thing for the last 15 days of keeping my air conditioner on, but keeping the wooden door open and a wire gauze door locked beyond it. And then there was a locked courtyard up beyond that, because I wanted a bit of the fresh air as well as a bit of the air conditioning, which everybody thought I was stupid. And one, I always sleep with the lamp on at night because 
get up to write notes and things like that. And I woke up at night. I'm a very, very light sleeper. I thought I heard some sounds and I went back to sleep. Then I heard those sounds again. So I looked up and I looked around the room and there was near that door, there was a hat stand which had a lot of bags with a lot of notes and papers. And I found that wasn't there. And I found the door was open. And I looked, instead of, I looked out and there was a man going through all those bags. Oh. And instead of reacting as normal people would, by shutting the door and calling the police, I stepped out uh, very sort of confidently. And in my best Mimsa voice, I asked him, Who are you? What are you doing here? And he was so startled by this mad woman coming and inquiring what he was doing when it was quite clear that what he was doing was that he was trying to and robbed me and he had actually picked up my handbag and brought it outside and my handbag was right next to my bed that night so that means he had been creepy crawling around my room you know maybe there had been some chloroform or i don't know what because it, it wouldn't be a wise thing otherwise for him to do i have no idea but uh, he disappeared he ran out from the back door mm-hmm. and i have never forgotten that utterly graceful moment movement of his he he it looked like he was floating a few inches above the air oh. he disappeared like a ghost or a ballet dancer he was arrested that night he was caught he was he'd left in such a hurry that he had left his professional instruments to break into all behind so he had to come back for it and then while in that process somewhere the police caught him and i felt very very sorry for him because i thought that a burglar's life is just about the most it's the most thankless profession. Uh, uh, average Indian burglar. I don't think this they get all that much. It turned out he was a very famous cat burglar. But I mean, the, the big thieves run away in airplanes to other ta- countries and tax havens. They leave behind much more grief and devastation than this man who had to work really hard to jump through barbed wire to come up to find nothing. And we are all doing what we can. And I mean, people said, you're stupid. Even the policeman said, you NGO ladies, I want, you know, what is wrong with you? He's a thief. But I, I, I hurt for him. And, and I'd forgotten about it. And then this novel, this character appeared. And obviously, some of the emotions I had gone through while confronting that burglary were, I never felt scared. People said, you must be so scared. You must be able to sleep at night. But no, I never felt like that. I felt I'm doing my thing. He was doing his thing. Our things clashed with each other. I mean, maybe it was not the most reasonable reaction, but this beloved character of Beta mm-hmm. comes from that story and that episode in my life. Yeah. So I was completely fascinated by the fact that um, many of the women writers in the novel are of an older generation, women with gray hair, their faces ravaged by age, by ill health and all. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And I wanted to have your views on why you um, brought these characters to light. Well, uh, as I'm getting older, uh, getting uh, writing about age is a very important thing for me because for the millennial generation, older people may as well not exist. Um, I mean, they are loving, they may have empathy, but if you were born before the cell phone, then you belong to another age and era, you know. And what people, younger people often don't realize, unless they have been close to many older people, is that nobody really gets older. Uh, Gloria Stanham said that 
they are as radical as ever. In fact, there is as much anger, there is as much pain, there is as much hope as you grow older as there ever was when you were younger. The only thing that changes is there may be more resignation because you know the window to do all those things you wanted to do and you still want to do are closing or society has closed them for you. I've been getting a lot of appreciative letters from readers and I got one today from a very brilliant young girl, a writer. Um, and she said that what she loved most about the book was that even though it was set amidst the celebrity and glamour of the Jaipur Literature Festival, so many of the characters were people who would be invisible to most people. Yeah. She said Rudrani Rana would almost certainly be invisible to everybody or Beta would be even more invisible because they belong to those categories uh, which people don't care to look deeply into. So uh, that's in fact been my effort over all these years of the Jaipur Festival. I, I look from below up. I listen to those voices, um, not because they are weak or vulnerable or marginalized or that kind of thing, no. I try to amplify those voices that have power, that have resonance, but that need to be heard. And once they are given a platform, they are heard loud and clear. So that's about the Lit Fest. But here, through my novel, I wanted to tell the stories of Betab. I wanted to tell the story of Rudrani Rana because these were stories that were very important to me. I didn't want to write about well, these were, I, I won't list out what I didn't want to write about, but yes, these were the people I wanted to write about to, to get people to look into their, their minds and, and the brilliance and glory of so many people who may not bother to look at. Mm-hmm. I also see the novel as an ode to world literature and popular culture. There's reference to Led Zeppelin, Bollywood songs, Bollywood actors and movies. There's reference to hip-hop, rap music, the popa singers. On the other hand, you also refer to various authors, such as those that are working on Walt Disney uh, and Ernest Hemingway, Virginia Woolf. Um, And finally, the narrative is set against some of the major political landmarks of the time in India, for example, demonetization, the emergency. Could you talk about that? So one of the criticisms I get leveled against me quite regularly is that there's a lot of Bollywood in the Jaipur Literature Festival. Mm -hmm. And that puzzles me because I I feel popular culture is the driving force behind almost the emotive waves, the self-images, the self-understanding of the life of a nation like India. And I would never, never um, consider... Bollywood as something beneath my interest or below my interest. Some of the greatest poets in India, be it Gulzar Saab, Javed Saab, Prasun, Joshi, they are regulars at our festival. And we are privileged in India that our poetry is communicated to audiences through such a powerful medium as film. I don't know of any other country where the poetry and the music are such a seamless part of each other. I, I really respect and value that. So, Led Zero, there are references to Led Zeppelin, through uh, there's Bollywood songs. Uh, all these 
you know, I took the risk that many people wouldn't be able to get the references. But I felt that for those people who get the references, they would be very precious. Mm -hmm. And those people who didn't get the references could either look them up or ignore them because there is enough for them to read into in other segments. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Hemingway came into the thing. Um, Walt Disney came into the story because I am obsessed by all the voices that come to us when we don't even know that they are coming to us. Whether it is the masculinity of Hemingway, whether it is the femininity of Virginia Woolf, uh, whether it, 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 there's just so many things which, which we don't recognize as markers in our life, but they are. Uh, such as again demonetization demonetization was a moment in this nation's life um, where everybody reinterpreted their own relationship with with money and uh, with finance and with, with so many things mm -hmm. with the feel and smell of money mm -hmm. and uh, I, I the story that came to me quite spontaneously of Betab exemplified also the power of money in making the writer. His happened in a very unconventional way that he recycled his ill-gained wealth, his, his stolen uh, lakhs of rupees. He recycled them very, very effectively into uh, legitimate money and also uh, into um, literary fame. Mm -hmm. And indeed, there are writers, I have to say, who, who buy back copies of their own books to make them into bestsellers. And it works because then the cycle sets up and they do actually become bestsellers. So, yeah, all these things, I, I tried to bring in so many slices of life into this very complicated narrative of, of um, imploding and exploding stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I was also fascinated by the Bhopa singers that you refer to in the novel. Could you please talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, this came to me from many years ago when um, one of the famed Bhopas died. And uh, there had been a beautiful session with him. And uh, there was then also a very elegant and intellectual lady who introduced him in the context of folk art and uh, oral heritage. The, the vast oral heritage of Rajasthan has always fascinated me and I've always tried to keep some place for it in our festival. Now, uh, that was one of the most beautiful sessions on the Bhopa and his craft. Then he died. Mm -hmm. After he died, his wife and son collaborated on a performance and uh, Malashri then wrote, Dr. Malashri Lal, my dear friend and collaborator, wrote a very thoughtful essay on this distancing of folk art mm -hmm. from its true origins. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when ritual becomes drama, it is a tragic moment in any culture. And it is that leap into a, 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 a different space without the signifiers and markers that I was trying to write about and the, the cultural loss that follows. But what can you do? Because you can archive 
you can you can try to keep these traditions alive, but there is something intrinsically tragic in in how we lose them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if we lose them to museums and to cultural institutes, mm-hmm. thankfully the the folk arts are vital and alive in the Jaipur Literature Festival. Mm-hmm. They're a part of it, mm-hmm. and there was so that was the story of the Bhopal. Um, and you also bring into the narrative the academic and the scholarly. The characters in the novel, various characters in the novel, are engaged in panels on subjects ranging from feminism, sexuality, the politics of pleasure, menstruation, etc. So how has JLF expanded from explorations of literature to critical and scholarly work? And how does it represent the erasure of the politics of silence around topics that were considered taboo just a decade ago. I'm also obsessed by how we, between us, me, William, how we program the festival. And there are these things that are treated as themes, feminism, sexuality, which are real and important in people's lives and which then are approached in a more detached way in panels. And after there have been enough panels on a, on a particular subject, the stereotypes start setting in, lazy thinking starts setting in, and then a new narrative comes to argue with it. So it's the way uh, the history of ideas work. And the Jeopard Literature Festival, JLF actually does look at life uh, and all the life narratives, because we do generally have people who have written books. But once in a while, there are people who may not have written books, mm-hmm. but they may be able to throw light on other books or other situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yes, we break a lot of taboos in, in, in Jaipur. We talk about things, we try to talk about things, and people listen. Mm-hmm. So whether it is uh, a famous and glamorous and articulate transgender activist like Lakshmi, or whether it is Sister Jesme, who was a nun who broke her silence on the church and the trouble she was facing from harassment and sexual abuse within that. We try to give people place to listen to their stories, whether it is the great Dalit writer, Manoranjan Yopari. But these are things about the festival. For me, the festival is, to, the, to a large extent, the backdrop of this novel as a literary context. It could be any festival, but I've given it the festival I know best with its particular nuances. But also somewhere the, the, the festival is almost a character in the novel in, in the sense of it being like this uh, virtual and literal cloud in which everybody is encircled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you refer to how um, the festival itself is a character, but I also thought that the that Jaipur itself is a character. You refer to the traffic, the colors, you know, when they go to buy saris and all that. I just was really fascinated by the setting of Jaipur itself. Well, Jaipur is a fascinating city because it is the ultimate tourist dream, but it is very cosmopolitan, but it is also a very conservative society, a feudal society, which has preserved all the best of its heritage. Uh, it, it, it's, a, uh, it's again a multi-layered city. Mm, and I've just given a few glimpses of it because 
the Jaipur Literature Festival is very much a part of the city of Jaipur and of the state of Rajasthan. It couldn't be what it is in any other city and any other state. State it would may be as good or one even better in some different ways, mm -hmm. but it is the it is Jaipur yeah. which gives so much plus there. JLF comes across as a democratic space, like a dream space, where the old and the rich sit together, the academics, the aspiring novelists, the young and the old, the rich, the poor, and the hoity-toity, single people, married people, gays and lesbians. Uh, JLF is also described by one of the characters as the most crowded spots on earth. How do you explain its popularity? I want to do, I do want to stress that it is the spontaneous and democratic nature of the JLF festival that, that made it so intriguing and so much loved by the audiences who came there over the years. Because we are, as you know, a very hierarchical society, but we didn't have any reserved seatings. The rich and the poor, the famous and the infamous and the not so famous sat together, listened together. And uh, this gave it a sense of community. It's, it's a very, very important aspect of the virtual world when people generate a joint energy together. In today's world, with the virus, with social distancing, I don't know when we'll have that kind of proximity again and how we will interpret community in the years to come. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure we'll find a way. We are launching tomorrow. Uh, a new initiative uh, which we call JLF Brave New World mm -hmm. where we are having two days a week we have some sessions the first two sessions are tomorrow at 7 p.m. IST mm -hmm. and we are trying to relook uh, the, 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 the new world we shall all be entering and to make sense of it uh, I find a lot of digital material at the moment is either over philosophical or it is full of nervous chatter. I mean, everybody's putting out what they are cooking, what they are writing, vast amounts of some good, but mostly ghastly Corona poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody is exploring their own writing, their own self. All this is wonderful, this self-exploration. But given the vast intellectual resources and goodwill, that JLF has around the world. For me, it was very important to try to curate some things that gave us a multidimensional, interdisciplinary understanding of this new space, partly virtual, partly physical, mm -hmm. uh, with a healing earth, with some sense of planetary consciousness, with renewed borders and tribalism so much is happening at so many levels if we can get glimpses of it and try to understand bits of it through the voices and experiences of writers from around the world it'll be very valuable so that is tomorrow i do hope you get time to listen and yeah so how can we access it it's on twitter instagram it'll be on a, a website where it will be accessible even when it is not live okay it'll be on zoom Okay, I look forward to attending it. Thank you so much. Thank you for this very deep reading of my book and for all the trouble you've taken with the questions and all these things. Those are very, very thoughtful questions. Thank you so much about those. 
I can't say I hope to see you in India soon. I don't know when any of us will be going anywhere. But I, I hope to see you on Twitter. I will. I will attend the session tomorrow. Okay, Maria. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you for your time. Okay, good, good night from me. Good night.